0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 121 by Rudolf Steiner, 11 lectures, translated by Joanna Collis, Uh, it's either Johanna Collis or Johanna Collis, forgive me for not knowing the pronunciation, I think I'll use Johanna, and uh, this is Lecture 3, given in Christiania, Oslo, June 9, 1910. Some of our investigations during the course of these lectures will immediately strike a responsive chord in those who have a direct and lively interest in the subject. But other trains of thought that are necessary for a complete understanding of the matters in question will be more difficult to grasp. Today, for instance, we shall be turning our attention to the inner life of the normal folk spirits, those archangelic beings of whom we spoke in the two previous lectures. We have already described them in their external aspect as beings two stages higher than human beings in that they are now engaged in transmuting their etheric bodies into life spirit or buddhi, an activity in which human beings are also involved. A consequence of their being involved in this progressive evolution is that the reflection of a folk spirit expresses itself in the human individual as that individual's native character. Now, Let us look a little more closely into the inner life of such a folk soul. If we wish to shed light on the inner nature of the human being of today, we must picture it as consisting of three members, the sentient soul as the lowest inner member, the intellectual or mind soul as the middle member, the consciousness soul as the highest inner member in which the human eye capital, is first properly brought to consciousness. Awareness of self is first developed by human beings in the consciousness soul. But nevertheless, the I is active in all three members of the inner life, the sentient soul, the intellectual or mind soul, and the consciousness soul. In the sentient soul, we are hardly aware of our I and are therefore victims of our passions and desires. The I works feebly in the sentient soul, in the intellectual or mind soul, it struggles to free itself; it only becomes fully aware in the consciousness soul, seen separately, these three members of the inner human being are three modifications or parts of the astral body. These modifications prepare the transformation of the astral body itself and that of the etheric body and of the physical body as well these Transformations, however, are not to be confused with the soul or the real inner human being as such. The soul or inner human being consists of three modifications of the astral body. The three modifications are obliged to make use of certain tools, and so in the astral body the sentient soul is a kind of tool. In the etheric body it is the intellectual or mind-soul and in the physical body it is the consciousness soul. We can thus distinguish the inner human being from his outer sheath. The inner nature of the human being therefore consists of three modifications of the astral body. Just as in the human being the inner nature, where the eye is active and expresses itself, is manifested in these three modifications of the astral body, so the true inner life of the folk spirits, which corresponds to the inner life of the human being, is manifested in three members, three modifications in the etheric body. In the human being, we distinguish between the sentient soul, the intellectual soul, and the consciousness soul. In the archangels, the normal folk spirits, we distinguish between three modifications of the etheric body. But since these three modifications are situated not in the astral, but in the etheric body, they differ fundamentally from the three modifications in the soul life of the human being. You must therefore picture the form of consciousness, indeed the entire soul life, of these folk spirits to be quite different from that of the human being. Let us now turn aside, from an external description, to look more closely into the inner life of these folk-spirits. It will not be easy, but we must be prepared to cross this Rubicon. Our point of departure will have to be some familiar conception, a conception that bears a close resemblance to the inner life of the folk-spirits. In normal human life such conceptions are few and far between for human consciousness has very little in common with that of the folk spirits. But you will be able to reach an understanding of it if you will bear with me in the following consideration. You all learned at school that the sum of the three angles of a triangle is 180 degrees. And you know that this axiom cannot in any way be demonstrated from external experience. Think of the wooden or metallic triangles in your box of geometrical instruments. You can measure the three angles of a triangle with the aid of a protractor, but you will never discover by looking at them alone that the sum of these three angles is equal to 180 degrees. But inwardly, whether you construct a triangle or merely imagine it, you will know at once from inner experience that the sum of the three angles is 180 degrees. This must be an inner experience. It must spring from the inner power of your own soul. To realize this, you need only reconstruct mentally the following. The diagram is intended only as a symbolic representation of the thought. This figure shows conclusively that the sum of the three angles is 180 degrees. You need only visualize it, and it will confirm this axiom for all triangles. You can hold this figure in your mind's eye, EYE, without the need to draw it. You thus perform an operation in pure thought by the power of your own inner activity. There is no need to go outside yourself. You can imagine momentarily that the worlds of feeling and of sense impressions no longer exist. Imagine the external world as non-existent and space as a creation of thought. Then in this space, the sum total of the angles of every triangle would amount to 180 degrees. To arrive at geometrical and mathematical knowledge, sensory data is superfluous. We require only inner experience, what takes place in consciousness itself. I selected this example because it is the simplest and most practical, since people already know it from having learned it at school. I could have given you the example of Hegelian logic, which would also provide you with a number of inner concepts. But here you would find much with which you are unfamiliar, as Hegelian logic is known only to a few. The example has demonstrated that one can arrive at knowledge purely from within, without any external motivation. If you imagine something that can externally only be arrived at through mathematical construction, you will have some idea of how the consciousness of archangels works. They do not perceive the external world of colors and sounds experienced outwardly by human beings. These sensations are unknown to beings of this kind. It is impossible for them to receive tactile impressions of objects. Such experiences are foreign to them. Their experiences can be expressed in these words, "...something is coming to me from a world that inspires me. This world has passed through my whole consciousness and fills it entirely." Now archangels are not beings who are limited only to mathematical concepts. Rather it is because of human limitations that people can only conceive of the activity of archangels in terms of abstractions such as the truths of mathematics. These truths are normal experiences both for human beings and folk spirits but the fact is that the archangels are not concerned with a phenomenal world perceived through the senses. The external world, as experienced by human beings and their sense-derived knowledge of that world, is unknown to the archangels. When you exclude from your picture of the world all sensations and perceptions of the physical world, all the external perceptions you have taken into yourself, then you are excluding precisely all the things that do not concern the archangels. The question then is, what aspect of consciousness is still common to human beings and archangels alike? All experiences of the sentient soul, the normal joys and sorrows of life, all colors and sounds, and in fact all sensory perceptions of the external world, none of this concerns these beings. Eliminate, therefore, the entire content of the human sentient soul, and remember that the world picture produced by the sentient soul is of no importance to the archangels. They do not participate in it. Even the part of the intellectual soul that is motivated by external sensations has no significance for the archangels. Whatever is triggered by external motivation people's intellectual preoccupations and emotional experiences. These also do not concern the archangels. There are, however, certain things in the intellectual or mind-soul that human beings do experience in common with the archangels. We are fully aware of this when we see, for example, how our moral ideals are born within us. There would be no moral ideals if we had feelings only about our joys and sorrows and thoughts only about what comes to meet us from the outside world through our sense-perceptions. In that event, we would no doubt delight in the flowers of the field or in a beautiful landscape, but our hearts could never be fired with enthusiasm for an ideal that illumines us from beyond the external world, an ideal that we can inscribe into our hearts and to which we are passionately devoted. But we must not only glow with enthusiasm and respond with feelings in the sentient soul, we must also learn to think about such things. The person who only feels but does not think may well be an enthusiast, but he will never be a practical individual. We must not receive ideals into our sentient soul from outside. We must allow them to stream into us from out of the spiritual world and we must work upon them in our intellectual or mind-soul. Artistic ideas, architectural ideas, and so on, are present in the intellectual soul and also in the consciousness soul. They are related to something that we cannot perceive externally, but that pervades and illumines our inner being, so that it becomes a part of our life. As we follow the life of peoples from one age to the next, we notice how new ideas have continually arisen and how new sources of hidden knowledge have been revealed in the course of time. From what source could the Greeks have taken their conceptions of Zeus and Athena if they had relied solely upon external perception? Everything that is included in the wisdom, in the mythologies, religions and sciences of peoples has been born of inner spiritual experience. Thus, one half of our inner life, one half of our intellectual or mind-soul, and of our consciousness-soul, is nourished from within. Indeed, the degree to which the human being is permeated with what I have just described is precisely the degree to which archangels can penetrate into the inner human being. And this defines the extent of the archangel's life. Whatever is received by the sentient soul from the outside and elaborated by the intellectual or mind-soul cannot be counted as a part of the inner life. We now come to the I capital, which is the highest member of our being. What we there introduce into our moral consciousness are ideals, moral, aesthetic, ideal thoughts. While our perception of the inner world is closed to us, we are able through the medium of the senses, to perceive the external world of colors, sounds, cold and heat. At the same time we are aware that behind these colors, sounds, heat and cold there exists another fundamental reality, namely the beings of the animal, plant and mineral kingdoms. And so we can think of the world in the way I have indicated as having continuity in higher realms. But the vision of these higher realms is denied to the ordinary person. If this were not the case, there could be no materialism. If people could have a clear view of the realm extending upward beyond the intellectual soul and the consciousness soul, it would be just as foolish to doubt the existence of the spiritual world as it would be foolish today to doubt the existence of the animal, plant and mineral kingdoms. You will recall how our I, our highest member, embraces the sentient intellectual and consciousness souls with the archangels the soul life begins with the experience of the intellectual or mind soul it then rises into the I which embraces a world of higher realms a realm of spiritual realities in which it dwells just as the human being dwells in the kingdom of animals plants and minerals we must therefore realize that the soul life of the archangelic being may possess what in us would be the human eye. But the eye of the archangel is not of the same nature. It is not identical with the human eye. The eye of the archangel is, in fact, two stages higher. So that with his eye, the archangel is rooted in a higher world. Just as the human being sees colors and hears sounds by means of his sense-perception, so does the archangel look down upon the world that embraces the eye as objective truth. But around this eye is still gathered some of that part of the astral nature which we human beings know as the intellectual or mind-soul within ourselves. Think of those beings as looking into a world that does not extend to the mineral plant or animal nature. Instead, imagine their spiritual gaze to be directed toward their world picture and that in it they perceive centers or focal points. Each such center is the eye of a human being, around which is gathered something that appears as a kind of aura, This picture illustrates how the archangel looks down upon the individuals in the people belonging to him, the individuals who constitute his particular people. His world consists of an astral field of perception in which there are certain centers. These centers, these focal points, are the individual human beings, each one being the eye of an individual person. Just as to us colors, sounds, heat and cold lie within our field of perception and constitute our world of reality, so to the archangels, to the folk spirits, we ourselves, with a part of our inner life, are their field of perception. And just as we set out to master the external world and transform it to serve our purposes, so we, in our turn, insofar as we belong to a particular folk spirit, are the raw material for the archangels or folk spirits to mold. Strange though it may sound, what we are describing is a higher epistemology of the archangels. This is entirely different from the epistemology of humans, for the given starting point for the archangels is entirely different. For us, the given starting point is everything spread out around us in space that manifests through our senses as color, sound, heat, cold, hardness and softness. For the archangels, it is that which appears internally in human consciousness. For them, this is an assemblage of centers or focal points around which the inner experiences of human beings are gathered insofar as these experiences take place in the intellectual or mind-soul. Their activity, by comparison, is of a higher order. What are the specific characteristics of the world picture that archangels or folk spirits have? The world picture of human beings is characterized by the fact that they feel an object to be hot or cold when they take hold of it. Archangels experience something similar in the way they encounter human individuals. They may meet an individual whose soul is filled with inner activity and whose inner life is rich. Such an individual will make a deeper impression on them. Another they find insipid, lethargic, with a poorer inner life. This is how human beings appear to them, just as heat or cold appear to the human soul. Thus an archangel's world picture is specialized in a way that enables him to use individual human beings and to work on their behalf by weaving from out of his own being what is to lead the whole people. There is also another way in which the life of this archangel is related to the life of a particular people he is leading. Just as a human being has ascending and descending periods in his life, the ascent of youth and the decline of old age, so does the archangel experience his youth and his old age in the rise and fall of a people's culture. We will now look again into the inner life of an archangel. From what I have said, you will have gathered that what human beings receive from outside, the archangel receives from within he experiences the individual members of a people as centers within him. He feels that this experience does in effect originate within his consciousness, while at the same time being alien to him. It resembles the sudden ideas that flash into our consciousness. He also experiences, in the opposite way, what in human beings would be youth and old age. In youth, human beings feel their limbs to be young and supple, to be growing and developing. In old age, the limbs become feeble and no longer serve their master. We feel this to be something that emanates from within. While the archangel also feels that everything comes from within, the rise and fall of the people nevertheless seems alien to him. He feels it to be independent of him, something for which he is not directly responsible, but which gives him the opportunity to incarnate in a particular people at a specific time. When the opportunity for incarnation occurs, when a people can be found in the full vigor of youth in the creative period of its life, then the archangel incarnates in that people, just as a human being incarnates after passing through the period between death and rebirth. In a similar way, the archangel senses his impending death, feels the need to withdraw from the people in question when he perceives the individual centers beginning to be less productive, less active, and to lose their inner vitality. The time then comes when he withdraws from the particular people and enters into his devakan, his life between death and rebirth, in order to seek out another people later on. Thus the springtime of a people, its youthful vigor and vitality, testifies to the youth of the folk spirit. He experiences it as a living, vitalizing force in which he lives. And he experiences the decline of the life of a people as a withering of the centers in his inner field of perception. This description, then, was intended to give you some insight into the inner being of a folk soul. In light of this information, we may say that in certain respects a folk soul is rather far removed from the individual human being whose sentient soul and the lower part of his intellectual soul are beyond the immediate perception of the folk spirit or archangel. For the human being, however, this is something very real, something that he feels to be intimately associated with the very core of his own life. In a certain respect, the archangelic being The guiding spirit of a people is something that hovers above the individual members. The individual's personal experiences, which derive from his sense perceptions, are wholly alien to the archangel who is guiding the people. But there are intermediaries, and it is important for us to realize that such intermediaries exist. These are beings whom we call angels and they mediate between archangels and human beings. You must understand quite literally that folk spirits are archangels, spirits who have completed the transmutation of their astral body into spirit self or manas, and are now in process of transmuting their etheric or life body into life spirit or buddhi. As intermediaries between those beings and human beings are the angels, These are beings who are engaged in transmuting their astral body into spirit-self or manas, but have not yet completed their task. At the present time, the human being is in the initial stages of this task, whereas the angels are nearing its end, although it is by no means finished yet. Therefore, the field of activity of these beings is far more closely related to that of human beings. With their whole soul nature, they feel more drawn to the astral body. Hence they have the fullest understanding of human joys and sorrows. But because, on the other hand, they extend much higher than the human eye, in that they possess a higher eye, because they can take in a part of the higher world, their consciousness reaches into those realms in which the archangels have their consciousness. They are therefore true intermediaries, Between the archangels and the individual human being, they receive the instructions of the folk spirits and transmit them to the individual souls, and thereby help to determine what the individual can do not only for his own evolution, but also for his whole people. In the life of the human being, these two streams flow side by side. The one stream carries him forward from incarnation to incarnation. It is concerned with his personal destiny, which he has to fulfill in order to perform that duty which is the most solemn and sacred for him, because it belongs to him alone. He cannot afford to stand still, because this would allow his latent capacities to lie fallow if he failed to cultivate them. Such is his individual destiny, by virtue of which he progresses from incarnation to incarnation. But... His contribution to his own people, all that touches upon the affairs of his immediate community, stems from the inspiration of the angel who transmits the instructions of the archangel to the individual. It is not difficult to imagine a people inhabiting a certain region. Over this people there extends the etheric aura of that people into which the forces of the folk spirit work modifying the etheric body of the human being in accordance with the three types of force. It is the Archangel who is at work in this folk aura. We must think of him as a higher being, two stages higher than the human being in his evolution, hovering above the whole people, issuing directives concerning what this people as a whole must fulfill. The Archangel Knows what steps must be undertaken during the creative, ascending period of a people when its youthful vigor and vitality are strongest. He knows what aims must be pursued by a people during the period of transition from youth to age, in order that his impulses may unfold in the right way. This overall plan is the work of the Archangel. Here on the physical plane, The individual human being must ensure that these great aims are realized. Between the individual and the archangel are the angels who mediate between them. The angels impel the human being toward the locality ordained for him, so as to bring about in the overall structure of the people whatever corresponds to the ordinances of the archangel. We will see this in the right light, if we take what I have been describing not simply as an allegory, but as a close approximation of reality, the whole pattern of events woven by the archangel is, however, influenced by the abnormal archangels, the spirits of language, as I described them yesterday. We have also described how the abnormal spirits of personality, the archai, exercise their influence. We can now turn our attention to the domain where the Archangel issues his directives, where he apportions the various tasks that are then transmitted by the angels to the individual human beings. But the Archangel is also able to work into the sphere of the abnormal spirits of personality. And in the mutual collaboration of the Archangel with the abnormal spirits of personality, since the latter are pursuing totally different aims. It is possible for the plans of the Archangel to be thwarted in some ways. If that happens, if these abnormal spirits of personality thwart the designs of the Archangel, then factions with specially appointed tasks form within a people. Under these circumstances, the activity of the spirits of personality becomes visible externally. This may last for centuries. In Germany, for example, where there is an urgent need for the work of spiritual science, you have seen for centuries this interplay of the archangel of the German people with the separate spirits of personality who are sometimes in opposition. The fragmentation of the one German people into smaller groups illustrates the interplay of the abnormal spirits of personality with the archangel. Peoples like this are not very centralized. They look more to the development of individuals. In some ways, this is good, for a variety of shades within the native character can thereby find expression. We may also take the other case, where not the abnormal spirits of personality But the normal spirit of personality, expressing himself as the time spirit, assumes for a certain period greater importance than would normally follow from the ordinary course of events. In studying a people, we regard the archangel as its guiding principle. Into this there works the time spirit. He gives his directives to the archangel, who in turn passes them to the angels, who transmit them to the separate individuals. Since as a rule we see what is closest to us, we consider the activity of the archangels to be the most important element in this interaction. Circumstances may arise, however, when the time spirit has to issue more important, more momentous directives, when he is compelled, so to speak, to take over some of the authority of the archangel because he must detach a portion of the people in order that the task of the age, the mission of the time spirit, may be fulfilled. In such a case, native groups split off from the rest. Here the time spirit visibly gains the upper hand over the influence of the archangel. Such a case occurred when the Dutch severed their connection with the kindred German people. Holland and Germany originally shared an archangel in common. The separation occurred because the time spirit detached a portion of the people at a given moment and then transferred to this portion what have become the vital interests of the modern time spirit. Dutch history is simply a reflection of this inner process. But we must not forget that history is only an external expression, a maya of an inner process. Thus in this case we see the separation of the Dutch people from the common German folk taking place externally. But the inner reality is that the time spirit needed an instrument with which to fulfill his mission overseas. The entire mission of the Dutch people was a mission of the time spirit. The Dutch were separated off to enable the time spirit to carry out something important with this portion of the population during a specific period. What is described by historians is only external maya that actually conceals rather than reveals the true facts. Another striking example of how a portion of the whole people can be separated off is that of the Portuguese people. You may look in vain for any explanation other than that the time spirit achieved a victory over the archangel. If you analyze the events individually, you will find that the opportunity was taken, and there were not many, to form a special people. Initially, the Spanish people formed a homogeneous whole with the Portuguese. One external reason for the severance could be that the rivers were only navigable up to the Portuguese border, but there are no other external explanations. The inner explanation, on the other hand, was that the specific tasks that had to be fulfilled by the Portuguese, were different from those of the Spanish people as a whole. In such examples we see the time spirits temporarily developing a more intense activity than they normally display. The harmony that had hitherto prevailed is replaced by a new relationship. Instead of giving his directives to the archangel, the time spirit intervenes directly in the history of a people and other spirits seize this opportunity to incarnate. When such a people becomes detached in this way, then, in the initial enthusiasm that overtakes the individual members of that people, the time spirit for a while discharges the functions of the archangel so completely that scarcely any evidence of the severance survives, save an atmosphere of bustling excitement and ferment among the people. This urgency and vitality stem from the mission of the time spirit. Then a normal and an abnormal archangel have the opportunity to incarnate in that section of the population that is broken away. Thus we see the growth of the Dutch and the Portuguese people, who are now under the guidance of their own normal and abnormal archangels. And the influence of these spiritual beings is seen in the difference in temperament which is expressed in the individual members of these two peoples. The way these spiritual beings exert their influence is quite remarkable, and we now recognize that the external events of history are simply an expression of their activity. That the external world is maya or illusion is a saying that is becoming ever more concrete for us. The events of external history are simply outer reflections of the supersensible beings just as the external human being is simply the outer reflection of the inner human being. For this reason, I had to insist, and I must emphasize this again and again, that the saying, the world is maya, is so vitally important. It is not sufficient to emphasize this in an abstract way. We must be in a position to apply it to every aspect of life. As we know, other spirits and hierarchies are also active in the world. We have already spoken of the normal and abnormal archangels. The abnormal archangels have shown themselves to be in reality spirits of form or powers who have renounced a certain part of the attributes of their evolution. The question now arises, what is the situation with the normal spirits of form? We see the normal spirits of form as being four stages higher than the human being. Parenthesis, in the lectures to come, we will have more to say about these normal spirits of form. Close parenthesis. There are beings who are four stages higher than human beings, but in the hierarchical order mentioned yesterday, the spirits of form do not occupy the highest rank. Above them are the spirits of motion, dunamis or mites, and beyond these again, are the curiosities, dominions, or spirits of wisdom. You will find all these referred to in my title, Outline of Esoteric Science, and also my writings on the Akasha Chronicle. You must now understand that the law of renunciation, of delayed development, applies also to the higher beings, so that the spirits of motion, who are five stages higher than the human being, may also remain behind with certain attributes some spirits of motion are today bound up with human evolution as if they were now only spirits of form or powers in respect of certain attributes they are actually spirits of motion whereas in respect of other attributes that they have sacrificed they are spirits of form thus there are normal spirits of form who are four stages higher than the human being, and other beings, who are actually spirits of motion, although they work in the same region as the spirits of form. Just as there is a sphere in which the normal and abnormal archangels cooperate, so we have here a sphere in which the normal and the abnormal spirits of form, the held-back spirits of motion, cooperate. Something is brought about by this collaboration that is very much the concern of human beings, namely the formation of what we call the human races, which we must distinguish from the peoples. Rather than becoming confused when we think of the matter in this way, we will gain a fluid concept. We must not lump everything together. A people is not a race. The concept of a people has nothing to do with the concept of race. A race can be divided into many different peoples. A race is a community and a people is a different kind of community. We rightly speak of a German, a Dutch, or a Norwegian people, but at the same time we speak of a Germanic race. So what lies behind the concept of races? The beings whom we describe as normal spirits of form work there in conjunction with those beings whom we have come to know as the abnormal spirits of form who are actually spirits of motion entrusted with the missions of spirits of form. This is the reason why humanity is divided into races. It is the normal spirits of form who give us everything that makes human beings equal all over the world, irrespective of race, everything that makes us members of humanity as a whole. But it is the abnormal spirits of form who, through an act of renunciation, have brought about the division of all humanity into races, so that instead of a single humanity, a wide diversity of human beings now exists all over the earth. Here, then, we have the foundation, the basis from which the separate individual peoples emerge. We have an overview of our whole planet earth, and we find that by virtue of the normal spirits of form, this earth is intended to bear one common humanity, and that the held back spirits of motion enter into this region of the spirits of form and as abnormal spirits of form differentiate the whole of this common humanity into separate races all over the earth. If we look into the purposes of these spirits, if we inquire closely into the aims and objectives of these normal and abnormal spirits of form, then we will understand the intentions they have for the races of humanity and how through these races a foundation is laid for what is to emerge from them. And if we then take the example of a particular people and study it, we will comprehend and understand that people rightly. The end of Lecture 3